It's February 1st, 2024. Hi there. Welcome to episode 308 of Rook. In the last 24 hours, we saw the end of a major bastion of Iranian culture and creativity in recent times. This is an ode to the Manoto years. I'm Gian Gomeshi. Hello to you from Toronto. Salam, Dustan Aziz. Duru Bashama. So Manoto was an international free-to-air Persian language TV channel launched in 2010, founded by Kayvon and Marjan Abbasi. It was based in London and its entertaining programs included documentaries, films, news and reality TV. Yesterday was its final day in existence. Now, you know all of this, especially the part about the network closing its doors, if you've been a regular follower of Manotur, where tributes abounded. You wouldn't know about this by only watching or listening to any other major Persian media where there's been pretty much no mention of it. Media competition knows no bounds, it seems, even when announcing the end of some television dreams. And in the Western English press, nothing crickets. So let's do it here and make it very clear. The impact of Manotou was profound. The final days elicited tears, and this is an ode to the Manotou years. Of course, we have to issue some disclaimers. No, not everything Manotou produced in 13 years was excellent or perfect. And yes, of course, the network had a distinct ideological bent. Some of its documentaries could veer from historiography into hagiography, but maybe we could temporarily put aside the very Persian predilection for tearing things down within our ranks and instead explore four reasons among many that we owe Manotou a debt of thanks, an ode to the Manotou years. Number one, Manotou should be applauded for making vital and entertaining programming for as long as it did. Trying to run a major television network with strong content, top production values is hard enough anywhere in the world in the 21st century multi-platform multimedia marketplace, but a major Persian network that you cannot monetize with the majority of your audience because they're behind an iron wall inside the Islamic Republic, near impossible. Not to mention the long-standing paradox that Iranians love arts and culture but aren't always conditioned to financially support it. That Manotou lasted as long as it did and had a huge impact cannot be minimized. Number two, Manotou created culture and was culture for Iranians inside Iran and across the diaspora. Emerging out of a media wasteland when it came to the Persian market, Manotou quickly played a pioneering role in showing the world and Iranians themselves a different, younger, creative, happier, more diverse reflection than what was to be found anywhere else, and particularly coming out of the image and propaganda of the Islamic Republic regime. To be fair, Manotou often got credited in some quarters for showing a different historical perspective from the mullahs, but it was in the cultural realm where its outreach was incredibly influential, from Gugush Academy to Befarimoid Sham to countless musicals, Noru specials, arts and culture programs. Manotou showed a different, innovative, vibrant, and vital Iran. That surely will be missed. Number three, not too long ago, a TV legacy with modern production values and world-class entertainment content did not exist in the Iranian market. Manotou had to pretty much create it. And over the years, Manotou became a training ground for young Iranian talent in the TV production and performance spheres. It was like the schooling system and the big stage all rolled into one. 
anyone who ever visited the Manitou Studios would observe how the staff were encouraged to become multifaceted, multi-talented humans who could jump from being newsreaders to appearing in an original musical or researchers to costume makers. Manitou created a warm family for many of its employees. And if that all sounds like hyperbole, go check the social media feeds of their staff in recent weeks or the tears on that final day yesterday. That kind of collective spirit is surely to be applauded. Finally, number four, Manotou had the integrity to go out pretty much on top. There was no overstaying a welcome in this case, kind of like Seinfeld ending its number one reign on top rather than stick around and fade to a whimper. Manotou didn't choose to cut back their programming and become a skeleton of itself or try to stay on air with half the resources. To the end, the content was strong, accessible, and what the long-cultivated, adoring Manotou audience wanted. They didn't wait to decline and then shut the doors. You know, there's a video of Kayvon Abbasi announcing to all of his staff back in November that they were going to need to shutter the network. You can feel the shock and heaviness in the room, but Kayvon takes a sage approach saying everything eventually comes to an end and new exciting things can only grow when others expire. Look, there's no question Kayvon and Marjan Abbasi and all those talented humans who've been working so hard at Manotour for years will start new, exciting, successful, and maybe even further pioneering ventures. For now, though, there comes a time for a high five when credit is due. Manotour TV, this one's for you. Coming up, a new edition of Rook, including a feature interview with the dynamic visual artist Don On Neh Don, joining me from New York. Plus, first up, a roundtable with Pega and Nikohang Kosar, where we'll discuss everything from Manotou to the UN's visit to Iran and the latest staggering figures on air pollution. This is Rook, episode 308, an ode to the Manotou years. Studio. Smart Pega is here in the Rook Studio. Hello. Hello. How are you doing? Good. How are you? Uh, I'm okay, but I, I was telling you earlier, I've got this, um, I, I think it's a nasal or like a sinus thing, which leads my ears to be plugged, yeah. so I can't hear anything. That's so weird. I, I mentioned my sister what? was having... <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it's not that up. bad. It's not that bad, but, I, but it's pretty bad. Yeah. Did you go to a doctor or get it I keep trying to out? open them like when you've been on a plane. Yeah. And you go, you know, and like, yeah. No, I didn't. I talked to my doctor. He doesn't. And? I, like what? Do It'll people go to itself. doctors still? I think maybe uh, my doctor never wants to see me. He's just like, Do you have yeah. the, like the telehealth thing where you go no. on like Zoom? No, or? but he, he did call me and then he was just like, yeah, just, he always just says, like, give it a couple of weeks and tell me if it, like he's just <laughs> giving up on me. He's like, just gonna, gonna, so let me know in a couple of weeks. And I'm like, but I can't hear what, you know. Um, <clears throat> Smart Pega is here and uh, also joining us from Washington, D.C. this week for our roundtable for the top here, a distinguished Iranian-Canadian cartoonist, journalist, and blogger. Uh, he's been deeply involved in exposing environmental issues and discussing democracy in Iran for years. Hello, Nikohang Kosar. Nice to have you back. 
Hi, Mr. Gianco Meshi. How are you doing? Mr. Nico Hankosar. I'm okay. And uh, we're going to talk about Manitoba in a moment. I just did that uh, opening essay mm-hmm. about it. And I want to talk about that as part of the uh, the roundtable. How are you? How is Washington? Uh, Washington sucks. So <laughs> Excellent answer. I was not expecting that. Okay. Omnibus answer. Like, is that you, the city doesn't suck? You mean the culture of the, the, the political? Politics. Yeah. All it takes and all the brouhaha and everything else. Yeah. It's kind but of a nice, I love the city. it's a nice place. Good mm-hmm. people. Yeah. Clean. Uh, cleanish. Depends. And they haven't stolen my bikes, unlike Toronto, that I lost, oh. I think, six. You're you, lucky if it's you what, just you your You lost bikes. what? Six bikes? Yes. No, that's. In Toronto, Oakville, Mississauga. Yep. Well, what what were you carrying in these bikes? What was it? Why did you? What why would six bikes? people? The bikes were supposed to carry me, but. <laughs> well, you're lucky it was just your bikes. Now it's cars. It's a bike stealing yeah, epidemic. Uh, I've never heard. Like, I mean, I'm, I'm, I, yeah, I guess bikes get stolen in Toronto, but oh yeah, eight six bikes. I mean, uh, yes, I almost said From eight. Two thousand three, two thousand eleven. Right. Wow. Did it occur to you after the fifth one that had been stolen <laughs> to maybe get a lock or something? Actually, I had two locks on each one of those bikes, so mm. that's not the problem. The the problem is that the bikes weren't strong enough. I think the uh, I think the locksmith was somehow a relative of the thief, so I don't know. <laughs> All right. Or the All, right. All right. I should mention Donal Nehdaron, mm-hmm. uh, the the visual artist, the the painter, joining us from New York City um, in a little while, in about uh, twenty minutes from now. Um, I love what he does. He does a lot of portraiture. Mm-hmm. Um, some of, well, do, do you know him, Nick? Do you know Donald? No, I'd love to see his work. His work is great. You can see it online. You can see it at his his Instagram, but even better is his studio. He gets people, he actually gets people to pose for him. Sometimes oh, nice. famous Iranians, but sometimes he finds somebody on the streets of New York and he does a portrait. Wow. And, and these portraits are really, he's got a, a definitive style. And he did this really interesting series of portraits some of them self-portraits about being jewish uh Mm. uh, he's a jewish iranian a few years ago as well Uh, i think it was called esther's children so he's a really interesting guy and looking forward to having donan join us in just a bit i should mention next week next wednesday is our inaugural rook live at theater aurora um, February 7th, Maziar Falahi, Shiva Nagar, Banaf Shetahurian, special performances by Babak Amini, uh, Captain Reza will be there, mm-hmm. Pega will be there, Wine yes. and Cheese Reception. Limited tickets now. I just asked uh, Roham, Savvy Roham, uh, he says like there's like a handful of tickets much, left. I think yeah. it's pretty much, it'll probably be sold out by tomorrow. It's Thursday today, February 1st. So if you still want to come, go to Inventbrite, type in Rook Live, or just go to our Instagram and the link in the bio will lead you to tickets for Rook Live. Nick, you got to be part of the next Rook Live. People want to see you in person, man. I'll do my best. I'll do it. <laughs> Even though Actually, you're shrinking. Nobody wants to see me. So because, Even the- let's forget that. But I- I'd love to be there. You know, um, if you come and be, if we do the next one anywhere in the greater Toronto area, bring your bike to the, uh, <laughs> bring a bike to the event. And Which one? Which one? My, my, <laughs> my brother has uh, brought his own bike to force me to actually uh, use it and get out of the house, but I'm too lazy. I'm from Shiraz. How, <laughs> how's that? But you're cultural. You see, the, like on the yeah, other I could say that. How's the biking in uh, in Washington? Have you had a bike stolen? It's really good. No, no, no. I, I haven't had any of my bikes stolen. So I have, uh, we have 
two bikes in the vicinity of this place. But the fact is, uh, I I haven't heard any of my friends lose their bikes to uh, lovely thieves. But mm. I don't know. It's a bit of a shame, really, because I, I would hope it would be a continuing trend. And then you could do, I don't know, a cartoon series or a, a book about it or something. Uh, how I Lost All My Bicycles. Yeah, and then I'll change my name to Bike. I'll hang from me. <laughs> <laughs> Michael Hang. Uh, all right, Michael Hang and uh, Pega, let's get to our uh, roundtable. Donna Netaran joining us in just a little bit. So I did this, uh, the opening ode, I call it the, an ode to the Manitou years. Mm -hmm. I think I made myself pretty clear that I think, um, you know, whatever one's position on the particular programming of Manitou over, over the years is, I think this is a profound loss. Mm -hmm. I didn't even believe it in the beginning. And I still think... Uh, Kayvon and Marjon, they're such industrious people. They're entrepreneurs, after all. And and Kayvon Abbasi, you know, he, Manitoba isn't the first TV network that he started. Mm -hmm. He was involved in other TV networks before, Bebin TV, um, um, Ozadi TV mm -hmm. in LA and stuff. So I think, you know, they're going to come back. They're going to do something more. They're going to see something maybe even bigger and better, whatever. But I do think this is a loss on the landscape. I'm curious to hear. Your, what you guys have to say on the day after the final program of Manitou for now. Pega, your thoughts? Um, I was actually really sad and really taken aback by um, the response from Iranians all over the world. Um, you know, I knew that there would be this profound impact of Manitou closing their doors because they really have been a large part of the majority of Iranians' lives for the last 13 years. Um, but, you know, to see videos of people in tears, to see videos of their own staff in tears, to read the commentary on Twitter and Instagram and things like that, it really solidified the fact that Manitou has had such a big impact. Um, personally, I'm sad too because I, I, you know, obviously over the last 13 years, your programming, um, they've been a big part of, you know, life at home for me, especially during the COVID years when I was back home with my parents and sitting down and watching their program. And the thing that I'm really sad about, actually, is the fact that now we don't have anyone really out there in terms of a TV station to pass on and teach those traditions and, and keep those, you know, they like Manitou used to do the, the Noru special or the Yanda special and things like that. And who are we going to rely on for that? Well, there Iranian are, state TV? Well, Definitely not. Well, no, there are other Persian networks, but they don't necessarily do the kind of entertaining yeah. cultural programming that Manitou had become known for. That's where the gap is, exactly. which is what I was trying to say in that essay. And and um, it's it's quite a significant one. When you say uh, a loss for you know all of the Iranian diaspora, I would put a little asterisk well, on most. that because, Let's or be most fair. even because, I, as I mentioned in the in the essay, um, it almost feels like a, a really big cult band going off the road like saying hey we're not going to uh, make any more records where the fans of the band are devastated mm -hmm. and then for people who listen to other kinds of music are just not not so much on the radio it's interesting like I was saying in the essay uh, there Nick that that I then I did this with purpose to go and see if I could find any coverage of this on Iran International or BBC <laughs> or or anyone talking about and of course it was almost complete silence from uh, I guess the media competition which I thought was was a bit pathetic really it's like this is a major cultural news moment you would think that that they would be big enough to cover it but what do you make of that the silence from other parts of the Persian uh, media quarters no actually actually uh, there was an interview with one of uh, Manoto's editors on BBC Persian okay uh, 
So, and I think I saw something related to Manitou on uh, Iran International. Okay, about, I, we couldn't find so, anything, but that's good to know. No, because I, I saw that video, and through that video, I noticed that Kayvan Abbasi had spoken about um, how he started the whole thing, and it was a three-part, you can say, uh, documentary, if you will, that Kayvan talked about his uh, past when he was in Iran, how, why he had to leave, and then... Well, that was a documentary uh, that they put out, that Manotou put yeah, out. Yeah, I learned about it through that uh, I see. BBC. So that's why I know that BBC had uh, had news about it. But the, the fact is, uh, what's important is um, Kayvan Abbas did a, a great job by training a lot of people who had nothing to do with media. Mm -hmm. And some of those are now working for um, other uh, mainstream media outlets uh, as professionals. Yep, yep. So that's one thing. Two, he was able to reach out to many people um, from different backgrounds in Iran and uh, tell them another side of the story that actually um, many of them were not aware of about the uh, about Iran before the revolution. And at one point, I think uh, Manotou was uh, on the top of the hill or whatever, whatever you want to call it, on the top of the mountain, um, 2018, 2019, in a way. But uh, gradually, it lost the competition. And some of the members of Manotou became too bitter towards mainly uh, Iran International, because Iran International was hiring people and they were paying more. Mm. And uh, Manotou had lots of uh, people working there, lots of employees, and didn't want to uh, raise the financial bar for so many of them. So that was one thing. Two, uh, they became too ideological, uh, especially from, let's say, after um, Massa's death. Yeah, they were sort of all in at that point then. We, we know yeah, where they got. They became so ideological, and they gave a lot of space to people who were ultra-nationalists, if you will. And some of them uh, sounded like uh, fascists, some of those p individuals. And so the the sad thing for me, I, I actually stopped watching Manotou years, years ago. I just used to watch the Farmer Chong. Mm. Let's have it there. But uh, the thing is, uh, they have done a tremendous job and on different sides, um, making good documentaries, making good reports. Also, they're um their own style uh spitting image that they had using yeah uh, the puppets rise yeah. puppets so that was great and i i believe uh what kayvon has done um will remain in the minds of so many but i i don't think their last year was their successful year both political but and but can i just can, can i just say that the um um when the when the uprising happened um, it was, I mean, it was a difficult moment for all Persian media because it was kind of, nobody wanted to talk about anything else, obviously. So it was a, it was a hard pivot, but I would say for Iran International and BBC Persian, for example, um, 
it was very much uh, it sort of played almost into their hands because they do 24 7 news anyway that's what they're there for so it was they were sort of prepped and primed and ready for this kind of um uh, an incident whereas i i felt like for manato whilst they did a great job of of sort of transforming into something that was um, covering the uprising that was involved in it in an activistic way uh, as you say they became quite ide- ideological as well but but you know they they were doing the the people on the street videos that they would air um, Fashad had that show where they would take the people would send in videos and Manitoba would put it for the world to see and the people in Iran to see etc which which provided a very important resource I thought they just simply how do you go from a 24-7 culture entertainment network to completely not being able to do that kind of coverage, at least in the early months. And I think that was probably very, very difficult for for Manoto, as well as they kind of tried to deal with that situation, Nick. Uh, they did it. Look, they, they could have hired uh, a number of very good journalists who were available and some people who were who had worked for either BBC Persian or Radio Farah in the past and uh, used their knowledge and used uh, their skills. These people have trained many journalists through the years. And uh, I mean, those um, editors or journalists who were available and they could have hired them. They didn't want to do that because that's not Kayvon's style to actually hire professionals. Uh, it's, it's very hard for him to work with pros. That's one thing. Two, um, if they had a ready team for this occasion, they could have been much more successful in the in the news business. But they lost the battle to uh, they lost the competition, especially to Iran International. And the other thing is that uh, their news hour was um, in a way managed by somebody who was too ideological, so pro. Um, monarchy that she doesn't even um, respect any other thing. So she, an ultranationalist that uh, considers anyone working with other media some something like a traitor. So, but, but, you know, but, yeah. that's, that's the hard thing for me, to, because if you're running a news um, organization inside a bigger uh, entertainment organization becoming ideological turns you into into a propaganda machine but the but and the part that the, the, what the, Avon intended to the, the part that i would take issue with though is that well they should have hired a bunch of top level uh, news people i mean there's there are economic considerations here mm-hmm. you can't overnight as you know completely transform a network um, and then turn it turn Manitoba into a news only network or something like that. I mean, the fact the fact that Manitoba is closed down is again evidence. And I m- my position is it's it's not a surprise it's closed down. It's amazing that they lasted as long as they did. Good for mm-hmm. them. That it, it, it speaks to their their industriousness. But I, I don't think that that's, that that no, was no, a realistic saying- thing. And they're up against a, a network that has you know to a to a certain extent unlimited funds in Iran International and BBC of course is taxpayer funded etc so it's a it's a tough game out there i'm i'm not saying that they would have actually had a 24/7 uh, news network no they could have had let's say even 2 hours instead of 1 hour of news on a daily basis but if they could have stayed relevant and had even two really good editors over there to work with these people and train their staff, their new staff over there, it could have been much better. 
when they hire somebody who has who has studied art and has not been a journalist to become the editor in chief of the newsroom, that's a problem. Pega? I think I agree to a certain extent, but I think despite the fact that, you know, they didn't pivot in the most professional sense over the course of, um, you know, what happened in the last year and a bit, um, and despite not having, you know, professional journalists and things like that, I think the fact was they were never a news station the way that, you know, um, Iran International, for example, was, and I don't think that was ever their intent. But despite all those things, you know, they lasted quite a long time even after that. And we see the impact that they've had. We see that, you know, a lot of Iranians, I won't say most, but a lot of Iranians are really saddened by the fact that they're closing their doors. So I agree that maybe, you know, some I don't necessarily agree with a lot of the things that they, they presented and some of the people on, on the channel, but it doesn't take away from the fact that they did an excellent job over the course of 13 years as a media company. Yeah, if you watch those um, those the, the documentaries, the, mm-hmm. the Manitou documentaries about Manitou, right. uh, which actually are quite well done. Uh, it's basically a long interview with Kayvon Abbasi with mm-hmm. a bunch of uh, B-roll footage. But, but you know, he says... Uh, yeah, their intent was to do lifestyle yeah. entertainment. They were doing, they were, they were feeling, filling that niche. Back mm-hmm. to where we started with this conversation, that that couldn't be found in other places. And even when they were adapting shows that um, existed, like Befrahmad Sham is a is a show that's been um, done in many other languages and right. many other ways. They take that and put the, for Iranians in Iran that was brand new and that yeah. was revolutionary, in fact. And and so those kind of things. Um, mattered um yes go ahead and and i was gonna say even for iranians outside of iran i mean you know for somebody like me let's say i've grown up here i've seen shows like that i've seen you know american idol and some and i don't know wherever's got talent and all of these things but to be able to see iranians kind of taking part in a show like that that was i think you know very different than what any of the other iranian Mm. media had done over the course of all these years all of those channels and in california and a stroke of genius to start with gugush academy so you have the big name and you're kind of starting off with something that uh uh is a big uh, a big deal Do, do you think um uh how do you think just because you are an observer of media as as we can tell nick how do you think manoto no longer being there um, affects the the information flow for Iranians around the world now? Um, look, they have a lot of uh, audiences, not only on uh, satellite, uh, on their satellite TV channel, but also on social media. Um, a number of those individuals will remain on social media, and they will remain active, but through time, I think uh, you could see some changes. And let me tell you, I actually uh, worked as a commentator for Manitou in 2018 and part of 2019. So, and I wrote... The the, the period that you just called the peak, I think, was (laughs) of of, of, a program. I was lucky. I was lucky. (laughs) I was lucky because they were actually, uh, you know, Purya Zarati called me and said that uh, we want to have environmental news on, on a weekly basis. And this was new because other uh news organizations weren't paying that much attention and to me environment is uh, a sign it's mm. uh i can say if a, a, an organization pays attention to the environmental situation it's it's want it, it want to act responsibly so that's why i really respected them they uh, produced a number of shows on iran's water situation that was really important so i commend them for that and they did a wonderful job 
what I know uh, through my connections over there, I, I went there a, few, a couple of times. I traveled to London and visited uh, their offices. What I noticed is that uh, the youngsters over there were very enthusiastic mm -hmm. and uh, they could have actually worked uh, their backsides off to do the best they could do to even uh, satisfy the Iranian audiences and give what the Iranian audiences need. Even if they hadn't worked in the news business, they would have learned the right way to mm. uh, serve the public. That's That service thing that I'm talking about is the, a great thing that I saw among those individuals. One thing that I, I think we miss over here, the financial part, when Kayvon in the documentary says that venture capitalists actually paid for the money, I can say nobody is going to buy it. So out of the uh, three part documentary, that thing is going to stick out. And because no venture capitalist is going to pay you money to lose that money and spend it and not give anything back. This is at the very beginning of Manitou after Bebe? I is think that, is that what you're um, talking about? after Bebbing TV, it's yeah. it's 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 for after Bebbing TV. Then when, when he Kayvon is asked if that where did he get the money? Uh, he he talks about let's say uh, talking to venture capitalists and look when you go there and compare the operations of uh, Manoto TV with BBC Persian and you hear that BBC Persian gets I think I know I don't know would, would it be um, 15 10 to 15 million pounds a year so you you can see that Manoto has to spend a little bit more so through the 13 years you can value you can have an assessment that they have spent lots of money well i i i mean he says in that doc and i think i, I believe him they've always had it's always been tough making it yeah. making a go of it and and in and in it like in, and, and i would i would say other than those that are funded by a state literally um yeah. it's a hard go in persian media i mean uh staying alive we know it on our own little level here with rook it's, it's not it's it's really not easy and i don't know i can't i don't know what the whole cloak and dagger thing is with why the the funding from manitou has always been such this 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 big secret i mean i i would assume that because there's there's an ideological bent it would make sense that the the funding has is mm -hmm. is related to that somehow but but you know i i'm i disagree with you that i don't think it's that shocking that venture capitalists would be interested especially at that time he had a great idea it was like let's you know let's there's a there's a, a viable market there's you know satellite tv was was still you know and there was no iran international either right so there was like you know let's let's get in the marketplace let's dominate let's let's turn something so i actually could see investors at that point going wow these guys and there's there's traction coming out of the things Kayvon had done before. That wasn't that shocking to me. Where the funding comes from has always been this thing. And you mentioned Manitou, everybody has to ask mm -hmm. that question. And I don't know why they weren't just more clear about that to, to avoid all the question asking. But that is for an interview with them, which hopefully we'll get to do very, very soon. I would love to. One thing before uh, I pass the torch to Pega. <laughs> one, uh, look, members of Manitou used to attack other um, or news organizations for getting, uh, let's say, tax money or money from di different organizations. Uh, so it's fair to be uh, accountable for that reason. And the other thing is that uh, those years, I think Farsi One was getting money from 
the United States. And of course, through Fox News, they had this uh, wonderful news channel, uh, entertainment and everything. And uh, I think Manotou did a much better job, although they had less and less money compared to Farsi one, I assume. And uh, that's why I think Kayvon will um, be always known as a genius, somebody who didn't go to um, college, somebody who used his knowledge of entertainment and also television to make such a, a wonderful TV channel. And by the way, this. when you say that, that you looked at BBC Persian and then you looked at Manitoba and you thought they must be spending more money, part of the reason you had those young people there was because they, they, they would they couldn't afford to bring in the six-figure salary professionals necessarily. So it, it was, let's bring in young people and teach them and bring them along, which of course is, it's not the, it's not the greatest for those who are not getting paid as much, but, but to hear the staff themselves, like I was saying to Pega before the show, and I mentioned it in the essay there, but, but I've been actually warmly surprised by the, by the devotion of of much of mm -hmm. his staff, people in tears. I mean, frankly, Nick, you could shut down a couple, two or three TV networks, either in the Persian marketplace or not, and not have the staff be that emotional. So they did cultivate this kind of family there. And maybe it was part of the mission that people believe in the ideology of the place or something like that. I don't know. But um, that part of it, I was like, wow, you know, that's that's to be applauded in any workplace, that people would be that emotional about things ending, besides the fact that they, they might have to give and, up their jobs. And also, you mentioned uh, cultivate. I wanted to see this cultivate cultivate has have to do anything with cults because <laughs> one thing that i saw is that uh, unfortunately in their last year they were they empowered this uh ultra nationalist cult and that's one of the things that they will be also remembered for. all right all right listen i know nick you 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 have to go you can't stay forever so let me work through a couple of items here um first of all uh this un deputy high commissioner visit to mm -hmm. iran um, I don't want to spend a lot of time on it, but it has been in the news and there's been, it, it seems like a bizarre kind okay. of happening and decision. So Pega, very quickly give us what, what it's about and then give us your thought. Yeah, so um, February 3rd to February 5th, Nada Al-Nashif, who's the UN Deputy High Commissioner, is supposed to take, take a trip to Iran, actually. Um, and the intent behind the trip is that um, she's supposed to talk to the regime about the status of women and girls and to talk about the death penalty. I mean, that sentence in and of itself, the irony, I mean, if you can't even recognize the irony there, I don't know what to say, but um, there's been a call amongst the, the Iranian diaspora to, to basically ask her to not go, to right. put a pause on this trip, to, um, you know, perhaps think a little bit more about the timing, things like that. Um, now, to be fair, this trip has been in the works for about six or seven months. So this didn't happen, you know, overnight. We've talked about it actually, I think a couple of weeks ago we brought it up, but there really has been an emphasis on the fact that this really is not the time for her to do this because of, of course, the death of the executions that we've seen take place. And what's the UN response to that? Well, the UN, there's no response from the UN. There's no response from her either, but there's a lot of questions about why there hasn't been and why there is still such a push for her to go. The reality is that a lot of Iranians, I believe, think that this is going to be used 
used as a propaganda pool, tool by the Islamic regime because they're going to say, look, we're engaging with the UN. Look, we're, we're cooperating in all right. of these things. And the reality is that we all know that the Islamic Republic doesn't cooperate with anyone, frankly. Um, and, and really, in light of the executions, in light of what's o- taken place over the past year and a bit, this is really going to be detrimental to the progress that we've been trying to make in terms of showing the Islamic Republic for what they are. Um, And I just want to point out one more thing. The fact that she's also a female going to Iran, there's a lot of questions around that in and of itself. Is she going to wear a hijab when she goes there? Is she going to talk about what has happened over the last year and a bit? So there's a lot of controversy surrounding her trip and whether or not she's going to go. Nick, quickly on this one. Um, one thing, yeah, it's uh, the regime will uh, most certainly use it as a propaganda tool to actually validate its own claims uh, that it's not uh, violating any rights, and um, they they will they will try to prove that uh, Na- uh, Nargis Mohammadi uh, is a criminal or whatever, uh, and we couldn't let her get out of the country for this and that. And uh, it's it's somehow the Iranian regime is very smart in uh, taking advantage of these situations. So um, that's why I actually I think I signed the petition uh, asking her not to go. Mm. Um, I have a side in this, but I think uh, um, the U.N. hasn't been very smart in response to uh, Iran's games, the Islamic regime's games, if you will. Let me let me get to a third um, topic here before we let you guys go and before we get to Dona Nehdaron, uh, who's joining us from uh, New York in just a bit. Um, you know, uh, Nick, we've had you on a couple of times. Actually, just you just wrote a piece about this last week about water in Iran. We've had you on about that. We've had Kaveh Madani here and, and others. What we haven't talked about as much, uh, and certainly it doesn't preclude us speaking about water now or in the future, et cetera. But, but we haven't talked as much about air pollution. And um, this has been something that's been brought up to me a lot, especially in the last uh, a couple of years. You guys should do an episode on this. There's a pro- and sometimes it feels like it's, it's this kind of anecdotal, oh, my parents in Shiraz said that, they, you know, in Mashhad said that the weather was really bad today and they couldn't go outside the airplane. You kind of go, well, they got that problem in Los Angeles too. What's the, you know, what's the big deal? But I was trying to do a dig, a, 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 a dive into some of the um, stats and the latest stats I could see around uh, air pollution and, and deaths from air pollution in Iran are pretty staggering. The ones I found, I mean, you might, Nick, have something uh, more up to date. I, I have it uh, a chart that only goes to 2019, but shows that the death, deaths in Iran from air pollution went from about 30,000 in the 90s to 45,000 in 2019, including 1,000 kids a year under the age of five dying in Iran from air pollution. Um, and this was 2019. I can only assume in five years things have gotten a lot worse. So what do you know about what the current situation is, Nick? I don't know the exact numbers because the government is not going to give you the exact numbers right now. But um, I've heard uh, from a few of my colleagues in Iran that uh, it will go above 70,000. Uh, we'll have more than 70,000 deaths. And so, some believe it will it would possibly reach 100,000 this year. Wow. Um, uh, it's it's mostly an um, assessment. I'm not sure if it's going to reach that number or not. But the, the fact is that um, uh, Iranian governments through time um, 
after the revolution have done absolutely nothing enough to somehow contain the pollution. From 2002 to 2003, before I left Iran, I was um, part of a news agency, an environmental news agency, and we were focused on air pollution and optimization of uh, different types of fuel for, uh, for automobiles in Iran. So uh, we were hoping that uh, by raising awareness, the people would possibly uh, hold government officials accountable for their um, wrongdoings or actually doing nothing for them. Uh, the problem is because of corruption, they didn't stop uh, the production of uh, very lousy automobiles like Paycon for a long time. And Paycon, that's actually Hillman, uh, the technology was from the 1960s, but they were still producing it in 2001 and 2002. And... Uh, Many people in Tehran, we believe, died because of the pollution caused by these automobiles. And the other thing is that the um, in some industrial towns like Iraq and right now in Ardakan in the Yaz province, uh, well-connected people have been behind uh, creating big factories that actually are using uh, the worst fuel possible. They call it, I don't know, what's the translation of it in English, mazot, I don't know. It's, it's something like a diesel fuel, but much worse. And this is something really, really bad for any human being living near that factory. And because of uh, lack of environmental justice in Iran, and it's something, when you talk about it, it's something luxurious for so many people. Oh, environmental justice. We're not right, like the right. people in Switzerland to have such a thing. But the fact is, we have to fight for environmental justice in Iran. But do we, we not... do we know uh, what what the pollution level, the air pollution level in Iran, I'm just, uh, particularly in the urban centers, is in contradistinction to other places in the world? Like, like, um, like some, we... of, some of Iranian cities are uh, the most polluted cities in the in world. The world. Uh, mm -hmm. days, a few days per year. Tehran has been one, Iraq has been one, and, uh, the bad thing is that so many people who have lived in Tehran have got used to it. And when they, let's say, travel to somewhere really healthy with clean air, they start having headaches. Right. This is not good. Right, right. People I know, actually. Right, right. Hang on one second. Let me bring Pega in. Go ahead. Yeah. Oh, well, you were mentioning cities, actually. Um, we're regularly ranked among the worst in the world. And the main cities in Iran that are um, at the top of those uh, rankings are Shiraz, Esfahan, Ahbaz, Tehran, Mashhad, and Tabriz. The big cities. The big cities. Yeah. And actually, Nico Hang was mentioning um, automobiles and cars. Tehran specifically, 70 to 80% of the air pollution is relevant to the transportation sector. So automobiles, buses, things like that. Um, and the thing is, you know, there's been this emergency committee for air pollution that's been created over the last years. I don't know exactly what year it started. But frankly, like Nico Hang mentioned, they've done absolutely nothing despite knowing this. And I think that a lot of it goes back to exactly that is the corruption that we see. So, um, Nick, just uh, on this, one thing that I have heard about that you I know you were you were going to say something about is, is that there there has been 
some activity inside Iran of people protesting against this, people raising their voices against the air pollution issue. So maybe it isn't such an elite issue that uh, that people are, are don't have time for in Iran. Can you tell us about the protest movement? Yes, uh, we had a number of protests in um, Ardakan. And Ardakan is the city of former President Khatami. And uh, there was a foundation in the province of Yazd that uh, the Khatami family gained a lot of money through that. And they were the ones who established a lot of these uh, industrial centers over there. So part of the thing is because of this well-connected family, they were able to get lots of money to uh, create all these businesses for themselves. And the people are going to pay for it. That's part of the environmental injustice that actually is happening. Mm. Some gain, but many lose. But in Iraq, that you have lots of um, plants over there, lots of factories, uh, pollution has been a major problem for uh, the people over there. But it it got it worsened, uh, and people went to the streets. And there, some of those people I've uh, spoken with are fighting for their children, for the future of their children, and they understand the grave danger that's threatening the livelihood of uh, the city. And um, Pegah mentioned Shiraz. Yes, we've had lots of problems in Shiraz as well. I'm from Shiraz originally. And uh, we had this major cement factory uh, in uh, southwestern Shiraz. And the wind just used to blow all the dust towards the city. And many people got sick because of uh, these very tiny particles. And we're going to have a lot of problems because of the um, Lake Urumia problem that we've had all these years. Uh, it's been mostly dry. Wow. And also the wetlands that have dried up, like uh, Gulf Khuni near Esfahan or others. And uh, people are going to pay a high price for the mismanagement of water resources right. by this government. So water is also a factor over here. Uh, thank you, Nikahang. It's always uh, elucidating and interesting to, to hear you uh, on these topics. I really appreciate it and hope to see you soon. Uh, be safe and um, hold on to your bicycles. <laughs> I'll do it. Thank you. <laughs> see you, buddy. Take care. Bye bye. Uh, Nikahang Kosa in Washington, D.C. Um, this this uh, air pollution thing is uh, um, it's interesting to have the statistics to go mm -hmm. with it to know that it's not. Um, it's not just uh, something that they're complaining about people in Iran or just, you know, but, but that, in fact, Iran is one of the worst places in the world, as you say, right? Yeah, it definitely is. And I think, you know, um, Nikahang mentioned mazut. I think that's the way you pronounce it. That that um, fuel oil has been banned almost everywhere else in the world. No one, no, there's no other place in the world that you'll see them using that. And it's because of the, the harmful effects that it has um, by being burned and, and it going into the air and things like that. And I think, you know, people are starting to see the effects of that. And that's why we're starting to see these demonstrations and people voicing their concerns and thinking about the future thinking about their kids and next generations things like that if only um clean air were part of the islamic as defined by the islamic republic yeah. agenda <laughs> it would uh, it would be a good thing thank you pega let's get to our, our future guest uh see you um well i mean i'll see you in a few minutes when the show <laughs> ends but also see, see you, you on stage that's right february 7th rook, rook live, live. Get your tickets, go to our Instagram page and click on the link if you don't have them yet. Uh, they'll probably be sold out in the next uh, 
day or so. We are coming to you on rookmedia.com. It's there that you can link to all of our platforms, Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Instagram, CastBox. If you want to see some visuals with Rook, switch over to our YouTube channel. We've actually started doing YouTube shorts, little videos, so uh, go check them out. Uh, at Rook Media is our YouTube channel. And if you like your Rook descriptions and bulletins in English and in Persian, check us out on Telegram. You can support Rook by, well, you can come to our live show. Uh, you can buy our merch or become a Rook member on Patreon. Uh, you press the Support Us button on our Patreon page at rookmedia.com. Let's get to our feature guest. And my guest today is an Iranian visual artist based in New York who's known for his vibrant and captivating portraits of human beings, ranging from famous Iranians to average city dwellers. Dona Nehdaran was born and raised in Esfahan and started working with oil paintings at the age of nine. He studied painting at the Sure Art University in Shiraz, ended up being a popular presence in the Tehran art scene. Specializing in portraiture, Dona's artwork skillfully captures the essence of nostalgia and historical narratives, creating a seamless connection between the past and contemporary culture. About nine years ago, Donna relocated to New York and has since created some acclaimed and engaging art series, including Esther's Children, which explores his own Jewish heritage, and his latest works, FE26, inspired by New York itself. Donna has been a member of the Iranian Painter Association since 2007, and his paintings have showcased around the world. And right now, Donon Nehdonon joins me from New York City. Hello, sir. Hi, Zian. I'm really happy to be here and talk to you after a while we met like two years ago. It's, it's, it's such a great pleasure to have you on the program. I'm a fan of your work, and I've been looking forward to this. Uh, so first of all, thank you for doing this. Thank you. It's all, all pleasure is mine. You know, you've really captured the imagination of people around the world, like me, for, for your stunning portraits. And I was surprised to find out that you haven't been doing these kind of portraits forever. It was during COVID that you started doing first self-portraits, and then you began asking friends to sit for you, and eventually even strangers. What is it about doing portraits of human beings that feeds your soul so much? Uh, actually, it's a very good question because uh, the COVID makes us very lonely and uh, not seeing people and we are, we love, I mean, I myself, I love people. And I never know that it's going to be this much disaster to not seeing people. So, and I just paint myself 300 times, like, and it was more study about painting a portrait through a mirror but uh, when i when the the covid gets less and less so i could see people and i asked just a friend to sit and pose for me and we just chat and talk and paint so it was kind of very pleasure feeling for me and it wasn't really serious um series i just paint one two three more people more friends and one day I counted them and I saw it's almost 100 pieces. I said, okay, I'm going to go for more. And my goal is 365 now. And I have already painted 205. Yeah. 
it's become it's kind of like it's become your thing which again is interesting i mean you're not that old but you're 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 not a kid and you've been this painter all your life and what you're known for now only started three or four years ago which is it's an amazing career arc in terms of what you're doing with these portraits something that really stuck out for me is that you don't it's not just about the person sitting in front of you you talk about how you get to know your subjects how they tell you about their childhood or their fears or their life stories talk to me about why that's important when you are painting portraits how do you if you do use that information in terms of your creative soul yeah you know silent is scary so my, and my couch behind me is is like Sigmund Freud couch so whenever anybody come and sit on that and pose for me and the eye contact is kind of weird too so we start to talk hmm. talk about anything how is the weather and people easily share their feeling, their emotion, whatever they want. And I'm, I play as a therapist, really, believe me. And even some of my model who are professor or writer, they write something very nice about this feeling that they stay away from the cell phone. You know, they just sit and we talk, you know, it's, and it's more interesting for me that I'm involved with the chat and talking and my hand and my eyes are working for each other. And at the end, after like 45 minutes or 90 minutes, I'm going to see a painting that uh, I I could say I painted with my subconscious. Yeah, this is th th this part I, I love with you, where you say that you paint with your subconscious, that you that I, I, I guess what that means is you don't have a vision, a, a specific vision of what you're going to paint before you do it. If the person is sitting in front of you and your hands just go where they go. And and that makes me think that the dialogue, if they're talking about some difficult episode in their childhood, for example, that's going to be reflected on where your hands are going on the canvas too. Uh, maybe I'm not sure, but what I, I guess my see my eye and my hands are doing that is they just try to see the, the darkness and the lightness on the, on the face because, because I have one source of light on, on their face. And it's, it's kind of Rembrandt lighting that you could see a triangle on the on the cheek. Mm. So I I I started with re, with Renaissance lighting like Da Vinci that the light is above the head, but it's turned a little bit to Rembrandt. That I love both of them. If I want to choose one, of course it's gonna be Da Vinci. But I'm I'm telling you just. Just I try to paint the dark and the light. I don't see eyes as eyes. I don't see mustache or hair. I just see dark to light. Very abstract. Do, 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 do you do you work at that? I mean, do you, in other words, before you start the painting and the person is sitting on your couch, do you actively try not to have a roadmap? Do you go, I don't want to, I'm just going to do what I do? Or do, is that just naturally what happens? And you know, you know, our body is made of water and water is very emotional. 
So definitely if, if my mother say something emotional, I get emotional and I don't know if it's, I'm, I'm going to be a filter from my eyes to my hand, you know? Mm. So what I see, I paint, what I feel, I paint. I don't know really, but I, I'm telling you, I just feel surprised whenever I see the painting. So the painting that you're painting becomes a revelation for you as well. Yes, because because uh, I don't think I just paint. Hmm. You know, it's very improvised. What's going to happen? It it makes sense to me, Donna, when you're when you're painting somebody that you don't know, and you've started to do that. Sometimes strangers, somebody that you've recently met, or somebody that somebody else has introduced you to that you have no background on, and you're you're reacting to what you have there in the moment, as you just described. But how does it work with somebody that you do know, or somebody who's famous? You're friends with Ali Azimi, for example. I know we have we have Ali as a common friend. You already know he's a rock musician. You know he's his background. So if he sits there, you're not coming to it with a blank canvas, if you will. Does that affect what the painting is going to be? Uh, actually, before I met them, if they are famous, I have kind of um, kind of excited, you know, or uh, I have kind of a stress because he's or she's kind of famous. But whenever I sit behind my easel, doesn't matter who sits on my couch. Ah. Um, I worry about how can I uh, capture and paint this much beauty. It's happened that I thought I'm not a good painter. I cannot capture this beauty. But for famous or other people, I mean, it's it's not difficult. How can I explain the beauty? I, to me, all the people are beauty. There is no difference between uh, 90 years old woman and, I don't know, a, a young man or woman. I mean, there is no difference to me. I just see, I just paint what I paint. But, but I, I mean, speaking of painting beauty, one of your first very well-known series was called My Mona Lisa, where you sort of do your your version or your interpretation to a certain extent of, of Mona Lisa. Where does that fit into what you're saying? Yeah, first, first of all, Mona Lisa is one of the most beautiful face portrait feature, whatever you can call to me because in my world, because uh, because first of all, Da Vinci painted. Da Vinci is one of the most genius human we ever had. Mm. He painted very uh, emotional. He didn't paint like Michelangelo that he paints like machine, you know? He paints very emotional, the lighting, the smile, the face, whatever he painted, to me, it's so emotional. Uh, so I really wanted to have this Mona Lisa for myself. So I just start painting her once and twice and third times. And at the end, I guess I painted her portrait hundred times. And still, 
if I get bored one day, if I lock, I, I didn't know what to paint, I, I'm going to paint one of these again. Be, because your portraits are somewhat in, interpretive, I mean, they're, they're somewhat abstract you're not going you're not trying to create a photograph of the person you're cre you're creating something that as you say is emotional that is that is moving that is a reaction to what you're feeling in in front of you have you what what happens i mean this is a perhaps a delicate or strange thing to say but but how concerned are you that the person who's sitting for you likes it i mean people have interesting reactions to images of themselves especially if it's not a if it's if it's a, a more interpretive image actually I, it's happened to that um, usually women don't like the portrait and what they do you want, do uh, i do nothing what can i do <laughs> um, oh, okay it's true what can you do uh, but 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 i should i should say before finishing this story that this project is about how race, gender, and age are beautiful next to each other. Mm -hmm. And all 365 portraits going to be all on one wall as one piece, yeah. hopefully one day. Yeah. So uh, forget about what I, whatever I said about beauty, really, because um, I guess human is beautiful. Well, it, um, it's very democratizing of every step of it from what you're explaining. You're as you say it doesn't matter if the person's famous or not famous or whatever every every everything's sort of equal in front on the canvas in front of you and and yes i can see i mean even if you go to people go to your instagram and they can see these portraits everybody is equal there is no there's and unique and and beautiful it's a it's and a unique, right. yes yes everybody is unique no even even twins are unique mm. each each other you know, one of your recent paintings and posts, actually, just very recent, is of an Orthodox Jewish man, and you've captioned it, Happy Hanukkah. And and you are Jewish, and a few years ago you decided to explore your own history and background through this captivating series called Esther's Children. I know you were inspired by the uh, Human Sarshar book of the same name. Why was it important, Donna, for you to preserve images of your... Jewish heritage in your paintings? Uh, because uh, because I, I grew up in Iran, in Isfahan, as a Jewish. And so we know that we are minority, you know? Uh, and when my brother was studying about the Jewish signs symbol, when he was finishing the university, I he brought and Sasha book and book home and I just get f fell in love with the book and how women explain our feeling that when we go to school we should not say we are Jewish you know we should always hide anyway but I try to I try to unhide this feeling and show show the world that we have history in Iran we live with other uh, religion uh, in Iran for years and we love each other. We have uh, usually no problem, thank God. My parents still live in Iran, uh, in Esfahan. And 
I had a show in Shirin Gallery 2012, I guess, or yeah, 12. And um, Shirin Paratui is a lovely woman. She was kind of worried that what's going to happen uh, if if they come and close the gallery. And I said, look, in Iran, they publish Human Sashor books without even tell him. They translate the book and they publish and they are selling the book and there, there is no problem and thankfully it wasn't no problem and after that Rira gallery in Dubai was interested with this show and I had another solo show in Dubai 2013 God, 10, 10 years ago and sold out the exhibition sold out so it was very interesting series for me because I'm one of the, those people and I painted my people and I should tell you most of people who bought this painting are not Jewish. Mm. How how did you, Iranians in general react to it uh, if not the regime? I guess it was in Iran was mostly about beauty of those pictures hmm. nothing else the, the exploration of identity is not a new subject for you and i wonder how how clear you are a sense of with your sense of your your own identity i mean how you self self-identify jewish iranian american new yorker Eswahani. um <laughs> what 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 if somebody says where you know how do you identify what do you say uh I like this question, actually, Jian Jun. Uh, so, of, of course, I'm Jewish. It's religion. Of course, I'm Iranian, and I'm from Espan. It's nationality. If New Yorker accepts me as a New Yorker, but I think I'm New Yorker, too. So, Iranian Jew, New Yorkers. <laughs> Sound, sounds good. <laughs> you know, in, in Esther's Children, you... You do a series of renderings of old photographs of Jewish families, and then you include portraits of yourself in them as well. And I was thinking, I mean, it's an interesting meditation, sort of thinking, well, why would Donna do this? Is it a way of demonstrating a continuum in your heritage? Is that is that the idea? Exactly, right. And I wanted to say I'm one of you. It's, I mean... I almost can't not ask this is we're living in a moment where headlines are preoccupied by rise in anti-Semitism around the world. There's um, conflicts all of a sudden, well, not all of a sudden, but certainly at the forefront of demonstrations, et cetera, around um, Judaism and Islam and, and the Middle East. Are you finding it's hard harder to be Jewish given the events in the world right now? Uh, I, actually, I, I I like other people. I hate war and I, I pray, really, I pray for peace. Uh, I don't know how they cannot make a peace. Is it weird that you come from Iran where famously i mean we've had people on the show like homa sarshar you know who 
talks about being Jewish in Tehran in 1978 and having to leave because at that moment the Islamists were, you know, uh, uh, threatening her and her family, etc. Uh, is it weird to have that backdrop, but to be in a place like America right now where there's this divide happening in America? what should I say but um, hopefully human can accept each other you know mm. and I prefer to not say anything I don't know because I don't have the knowledge about this uh, yeah what what can I say you know I got you yeah you were born and raised in Isfahan tell, tell me about your grandfather so I never actually I never met him because uh, uh, because whenever he died I was born in his anniversary first anniversary of his pass away and so of course they put his name on me Rahmatullah but they never called me Rahmatullah they always called me Donna because uh, because uh, all my siblings name start with D. So my my mother come to school and asked the teacher, call Donna, and I said, you, you don't know, I'm here, my name is Rahmatullah here, and she always forgot what, whatever she named me. Anyway, uh, my grandfather was very good at jewelry and antique, and he was kind of famous for that. I remember we had lots of... Uh, very great great antique in grandparents house and my uncle my mother's brother he painted lots of painting with oil on canvas mm. and i remember the first time that i found his box my mother saw the shine in my eyes and she said if you are interested i can take you to a art class and i remember i was in heaven when i went to art class when I was nine and I could use the oil on canvas. It was the most interesting thing. Even when I talk about that, I got goosebumps. It's, mm. cannot, I cannot explain that feeling that I could paint. Even before then, I remember that I was very good at sketching, even a sketch in my mind if I didn't have a pen. Uh, I guess maybe we can call it talent. You know, it's talent and passion and then caring about those feelings. What were the first things that you painted when you were nine? Do you remember? Yeah, my, my teacher just told me make two thirds of the canvas just blue. And I just, and, and he, he gave me a braveness to do that. And then he teach me how to paint some trees and a house like, it was, yeah, I remember that painting very, very well. Let me get your opinion on um, creativity, art and creativity and Iranians, because this, despite the incredible wealth of art and creativity and certainly poetry, et cetera, that, that we've, we can see throughout the centuries coming from Persia, Iran, et cetera, um, there is this... I can't tell you the number of people say who's, who've even come on this program who've said that, um, you know, they were 
directed by their parents to go into becoming an engineer or a doctor and this sort of conversation we always have around how arts is not valued uh, in the same way in, in Iran as it might be in other places in the world and it feels like there's this all this creative potential that some, sometimes is not met uh, in Iran because people are not are streamed away from being artists or or being artistic it sounds like you grew up in a very arts friendly family do you think that that's half of what made you a great painter in other words the the fortune of having people around you like your mother who encouraged it of course my mother told me i i've seen many doctors who graduate from medicine medicine and they never did any they never met any people they just start to paint and if you love to paint just just do whatever you love and i remember my father said if you if you want to paint buy a good material don't paint with cheap cheap material <laughs> and uh i i always had their encouragement I should, it's so cliche, but I should say thank you to both of them. It's wonderful. I mean, you're lucky to have those those parents. I mean, your brother is artistic as well, you know, as a photographer. Yeah, my, exactly. My brother uh, studied painting, but he never used paint. He used camera. He find a better, maybe, uh, material to capture his, his idea. Uh, but, but he's so good. Actually, he's... His pieces is in, is in Lachman Museum, in Detroit Museum. He got lots of uh, prize for Nikon photo contest and other things. He he's he's I guess he's way better than me. Well, you see, you've been quite modest in this interview. When you say I don't know, maybe it was talent, etc. You you do know. I mean, you you should know how good you are, and you've you've been celebrated. You've been exhibited around the world. When did you when did you know, or when did people around you know that? you were good, that you have this? Uh, people say you don't try to paint, you just paint, you know? Um, and in in university also we have good teacher that, so they give me good marks. I don't know why, so probably I was good. And you know that it's our culture. We cannot say I'm good. You know, I'm. I'm. I, we cannot say that. Well, there seem to be some people who who are very adept at saying that in our culture as well. That oh, I am the best. I'm good. But uh, I, you are apparently Tarofi, and you're not gonna. Um, you're you're not gonna be rock enough to tell us that you know you're very good. But I I appreciate that modesty. You do study in Shiraz, and then you end up for ten years in Tehran before coming to America. Talk to me about that time. I mean, uh, under the current regime, we get used to hearing that there's not much respect and support for, for given given to artists. You, you were in Tehran right after that sort of period of hope and reform, Khatami. How would you describe Tehran and the art scene in those post Khatami years when you were doing a fair number of exhibits? I remember that whenever uh, Musavi was. Uh, candidate for for the president uh, we had an exhibition with him in in a huge gallery in Tehran and it was very uh, interesting that our future president can paint you know and I remember his painting that it was still life some apple 
it was good. You know, I, I'm not good at politics at all. I don't, I don't know what to, should I say between... Was it a thriving scene? Did you feel like, I mean, is it, can, I mean, even today, of what you know of the, the Tehran art scene, is it, is it something that you wish would get, would have more oxygen or do you feel like there, there's a lot going on there? I'm just asking you to tell me what it, what you, what you feel like it's like. Um, I guess the art scene in, in Iran, in Tehran is so good you know i i see i should say that uh in new york is the best but it's too much you know you cannot follow hmm. uh Metropolitan museum you cannot uh and chelsea galleries and tribeca galleries brooklyn back galleries or moma museum i you cannot follow all of them but in iran because it's in tehran because it's everything is uh, smaller you can do all you can do all of them and you enjoy but here I just skip I just said I cannot make uh-huh. that I cannot do that I can I, I stopped you know one day you you decided to not not go there interesting well but you, to you... Me, I should tell you that I I love New York I love New York but Tehran is something else well, you said that you, you when you came to America, this would be eight or nine years ago now, you only anticipated doing so for a year. You were just kind of come to basically visit for an extended period, but but then you ended up staying. Why did you stay? One of the reasons was green card, because I got the green card that they said, if you want to keep it, you should stay in America. And so you, you can be out of America for four months. So I visited my my family for four months. I had the exhibition back to Tehran, had the exhibition. But at the end, I was in New York. And so COVID happened. And the, the, instead of five years, it's happened for seven years. And I got my citizenship. And now, I don't know, everybody in Tehran tell me, nobody stay, everybody's moving you know nobody stay yeah. why you want to come back and i should tell you in with that imagination of nine years ago i still want to back to but something that's interesting so you think you might return to iran who knows maybe someday <laughs> well it's interesting that you should say that because your latest works are not just related to New York, something of a testament to New York City, which is what I think you of you as a, a New Yorker, because it's when I met you the first time at your, you know, in New York where you where you live and hang out. Your late one of your latest projects is FE twenty six. It's um, inspired by New York. It's much more abstract than your portraits and your other paintings. Tell us about it. I'm not even sure how to put it into words. Maybe you can. Yeah, FE26 is a number of iron in um, pediatric table, uh, the Mandalayov table. And I should tell you before then, I started this project in first year I live in New York City. Mm. So I was really inspired with the city and I took the train and I could see the construction of New York City, how they built, you know. It's a very interesting city that they 
built with huge column of iron and they hide with with stone with tiles lots of material but at the end they rust because it's humid here and they come out of the all those uh, cover cover could be tiles cement you see on the step that some part is broken the rust moved down and it's beautiful it's so beautiful and i was thinking that how the material can talk to you hmm. and it was to me like we have feeling that we try to hide but we are not successful it's so you're such an interesting guy i mean between what you've just said about the columns of buildings and the people sitting on your couch i mean they say great artists it's about the what, what they see what they when they would look at something but you you clearly see um like you see emotions you see energy in a way that i feel like most of us maybe don't so this is actually my job to see that's um, that's my job <laughs> i see many things if you walk with me in the street i'm going to show you many things that people never see but clearly clearly them, we're talking we're talking about them. iron in buildings i mean clearly you see things that other people don't see at the same time i feel like is that true of all i mean i feel like um somebody might say well paint this apple and somebody would see an apple and sort of paint it you know very almost mathematically uh um whereas with you i'm i'm sure i'm not going to see the same apple that would be painted by musavi <laughs> yeah i mean uh, definitely as we we talk everybody is unique and everybody has this different eye to to the world but as my job to see and capture and maybe paint i i could see definitely more than people it's such a great pleasure to get to talk to you and to do this. I've been looking forward to it. A, a final question for you, but perhaps a kind of a a, a very a, almost juvenile one. But I mean, you this idea of the portraits back to where we started and and the the hundred or the, the over two hundred you've done now, and you're looking to do more. Um, who's on your list for somebody you would you, really like? It's you, actually. <laughs> Anytime, man. I'm, 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 I'm right here. I'm available. I'll come and sit on the couch, of course. Um, I mean, I don't know if you can fit my nose on the canvas, but uh, <laughs> you'll have to, you'll have to try. Uh, that's very kind of you. Who else is on your list? I actually, I prefer to not say to mention because, uh, uh, believe it or not, some people come after two years. After two years, emailing, and they have no time but at the end they they stop so uh i'm not gonna name them but there are many interesting like yourself in my list and um hope hope gonna i gonna finish 365 one day well i gotta i gotta come to new york and get painted by you before you finish because i i'm it, it would be an honor i would love to my my honor really donna it's been a great pleasure I thank you. I appreciate you. And I hope we do it again. And I look forward to seeing you in person. No, really, please. Let's do it again. Because, because you, you, you 
find something in in our conversation that I never see the same as as my job I could see and you can listen and you can talk and you can discover many things in our conversation so looking forward to see you again talk to, talk again and yeah Merci, Aziz. thank you and so much one more time to know each other uh, thank you again thank you Khodafiz. Khodafiz. Dono, Nehdaron, joining me from New York City. Great to have him on the program. This is full time for Rook for today. Remember, for all things Rook related, you can go to our website, rookmedia.com. Everything is there. All of our previous episodes, guests, programming, it's all there, rookmedia.com. Thanks to the amazing team who put this show together each week, Savvy Roham, Talented Anahita, Super Parisa, Smart Pega, Bearded Omid, Methodical Kaveh, Resonant Raha. Thank you to all of you out there for supporting us and sharing our content. Please subscribe if you haven't done so already. You can find me on Instagram at Giangameshi. Find Rook on Instagram at Rook Media. And in the meantime, as ever, Mizunbashin.